This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi everyone and thank you for tuning in to the 207th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host Scott Feinberg and my guest today is an outstanding veteran character actor who somehow was never even nominated for an Academy Award prior to this year, but this year is up for and is the heavy favorite to win the Best Supporting Actor Oscar for his portrayal of an angry and bigoted Midwestern cop in Martin McDonough's Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, Sam Rockwell. Rockwell has been working in the business for 30 years, giving great performances of varying sizes in films such as Julian Schnabel's Basquiat, Woody Allen's Celebrity, Robert Zemeckis' The Green Mile, George Clooney's Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, Ridley Scott's Matchstick Men, Ron Howard's Frost Nixon, Clark Gregg's Choke, Duncan Jones's Moon, Tony Gilroy's Conviction, Nat Faxon and Jim Rash's The Way Way Back, Martin McDonough's Seven Psychopaths, and, in 2017, McDonough's Three Billboards, for which Rockwell has already received Best Supporting Actor Critics' Choice, Screen Actors Guild, Golden Globe, and BAFTA Awards. After hearing our conversation, I think you'll have a clear understanding of why he's considered a true actor's actor and why he would be a tremendously worthy Oscar winner on March 4th. But first, I was joined at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter by our tech editor, Carolyn Giardina, who also writes the Behind the Screen column both online and in print. She's also the author of the 2012 book Exploring 3D, The New Grammar of Stereoscopic Filmmaking. There are words in that book title that I'm not even sure what they mean, so that is why for days like today when we are going to go over the below-the-line categories, some of these tech categories, I turn to Carolyn Giardina. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I guess let's just sort of define our terms here. The tech categories, these are often grouped as quote-unquote below-the-line categories. Sometimes they're the ones at award shows that people go to the bathroom during, but they are really the heart of how these movies come to be, right? I mean, we should not be dismissive of them. These movies would not be what they are without these categories. These are very important areas. We should also point out that sometimes they are referred to as technical categories. Mm -hmm. They're really not. Anyone who works in any of these areas will tell you that there is creativity involved first, and everything that they do is very much about telling the story. Absolutely. And we are talking specifically about the people who are responsible for sound editing, sound mixing, visual effects, cinematography, film editing, and others as well. We'll touch upon each of these because we want to give our listeners every advantage when they start to fill out their ballots for their Oscar pools. But I think we should just note that in quite a few instances this year, movies that are nominated for Best Picture are not at all represented in these what I guess we'll, we'll call in, in with the greatest respect below-the-line categories, but also movies that are heavily represented in below-the-line categories are not represented in the Best Picture race. I know that's always the case to some extent, but it seems pretty noticeable this year. Lady Bird, Get Out, and The Post, all among the nine Best Picture nominees, not a single below-the-line nomination for any of them. And Call Me By Your Name is solely 
recognized outside of the highest profile categories with a song nomination, so it's barely represented there. And then you have, alternatively, in the below line categories, five nominations for Blade Runner 2049, four for Mudbound and Star Wars Last Jedi, three for Baby Driver and I, Tanya, two for Beauty and the Beast, Coco, and Victoria and Abdul, and not a Best Picture nomination for any of them. What do you make of that? I think the the individual branches are looking at the work, and there's been some really innovative filmmaking this year that's not necessarily represented in, as you point out, Mm -hmm. categories like Best Picture. Mm -hmm. I mean, Baby Driver is a great example. Mm -hmm. That was such an original idea. It was very innovative, and it's nominated for film editing, sound editing, and sound mixing. Mm -hmm. And the way those crafts came together mm-hmm. to create that kinetic film was fantastic, really admired in those branches, though it didn't go to the best picture category. So that's just one example, sure. really, I think, of where the branches are looking at the individual work. And I guess on the flip side of that same point is the fact that a movie like The Shape of Water, which comes in with a field leading 13 nominations, many of them from below the line categories, is no less assured of a win than a movie like Get Out, which has, again, no representation in below-the-line categories. And I just wonder if you can sort of explain why that might be the case. Obviously, there's a preferential ballot, which makes things a little more complicated. But what does it say that people from a lot of these below-the-line branches got behind The Shape of Water that doesn't necessarily mean that they will also vote for it for Best Picture? Like, the most nominations does not historically equal necessarily winning Best Picture, right? No, it doesn't. In the case of The Shape of Water, I think we saw a very complete film where every single craft had to rise to the occasion, and they all did. Mm-hmm. And that's why we're seeing so many nominations, because if, if you look at it as it is, you know, it's in its entirety, every craft is strong. Yeah. And the fact that Get Out, for instance, is not nominated for below-the-line stuff, does that mean that its below-the-line work was lesser than or just less central to its success? It's a very different movie. I mean, obviously, there's a lot more visual effects in Shape of Water than Get Out. <laughs> Dunkirk is another one that, Blade Runner, that, you know, when you look at the ones that have a lot of crafts, they are represented in a lot of categories. And Get Out, I think, is a very different type of movie that maybe not all of those crafts are as visible. So let's actually take a look at these categories that are the ones that don't necessarily get as much attention as picture, director, actor, actress, supporting, supporting, screenplay, screenplay. I'm going to suggest that we start with a fun big one, Best Animated Feature. The nominees this year are The Boss Baby, The Breadwinner, Coco, Ferdinand, and Loving Vincent. I know that Coco has won everything. Is there anything interesting that that could happen here, or is that just sort of a slam dunk? It feels like a fait accompli. <laughs> it certainly does. Like you said, it's 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 been recognized in many of the individual guilds, the producers' guild, and et cetera. And it certainly seems like it's on its road to an Oscar. What's disappointing is that not everyone saw some of the indies that were represented mm-hmm. this year, Loving Vincent and The Breadwinner, both mm-hmm. of which were nominated, which were really innovative films, mm-hmm. especially The Breadwinner was one that I, I really would have hoped more people had seen. Right. This is a story about a young girl growing up under the Taliban regime, mm-hmm. and she has to cut her hair and basically 
disguise herself as a boy to provide for her family when her father is imprisoned. It's a beautiful movie and, you know, really strong in all, you know, the music, like, again, if you look at it across the board, really strong in all the areas and a very empowering movie. For women, it's just tough to come up against the Disney Pixar machine, partly because they do great work and partly because every time they win, more of the people who won for their movies get invited to join the Academy, which sort of makes it a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's like in the old days during Hollywood's golden age, People worked for a specific studio outside of animation. You know, you were under contract to MGM. You were under contract to Warner Brothers, whatever. And Joan Crawford has this great quote where you'd have to be a ninny not to vote for your own studio and protect your own employment. And I I guess that certainly applies really today only in the animated categories. But it's, again, you can't take anything away from the work of Disney Pixar. They do a great job. Oh, no, no, absolutely not. Coco is a really well-made movie and really solid so the attention it's getting is certainly deserved for sure and that includes doing very well at the annie awards which have been quite strong predictors of this category over the years their winner has differed from this category's oscar winner only five times since 2001 and also a stat that i found pretty interesting was that the last time that a disney pixar film lost to a movie not from Disney Pixar in this category was more than a decade ago. So I think part of it, again, is just that people check out their movies because they do consistently really good work, and it just becomes sort of, to some extent, cyclical. But it's a shame. I guess there's no way to compel people to see these other lower-profile nominees. I would point out, though, that going back that far on the Annie's maybe isn't a perfect comparison because we also had that period during which, if you remember, Disney boycotted. (laughs) And, you know, we had some times where, you know, the choices were actually quite contentious. And what was that about again? They just felt that DreamWorks somehow had an advantage with the Annie's? It really happened the year that Kung Fu Panda swept the Annie's and shut out Wally. Which went on to win the right. Academy Award. And the year after that was when Disney boycotted and the group came together and made some changes to the voting procedures. Mm-hmm. So I would just point out that there were a few years in yeah. there that there were other factors yeah. going on as well when, during those discussions. Yeah. Let's turn now to the two sound categories there is best sound editing and best sound mixing. In my experience, I've shared this with you before. Pretty much everyone outside of the sound branch of the Academy, all the other branches, all the other people, have no idea what the difference is between sound editing and sound mixing, or they have a completely incorrect idea of what it is. Can we ask you to share the proper definitions of each, and then also what might explain the fact that we still, even though the nominees were chosen by sound people who know those distinctions, that they chose the same five nominees in both categories? Basically, the worst thing they could do to encourage the Academy to keep separate categories for sound. A good analogy I've heard used over the years to simplify it is to liken it to cooking. Mm -hmm. Sound editing is where you're basically putting together all the ingredients. So we have a, a dialogue editor, we have a music editor, we have an effects and foley editor. Then it goes to the mixing, and the mixing is when you put all the ingredients together and you come up with your your final product. Oh, that's interesting. Let me follow up with something here for you, because our film editor here, Greg Kilday, raised an interesting point to me about that, which is, unless you worked on a film, how do you know what was done in the editing versus what was done in the mixing? How's somebody else supposed to analyze that? I've heard that said about visual effects and other categories as well. (laughs) I mean, it's just a weird... I, I think we're probably 
would you disagree? I mean, at this point, especially based on the fact that this this year, again, we have the same five films nominated for both sound editing and sound mixing, Baby Driver, Blade Runner 2049, Dunkirk, The Shape of Water, and Star Wars The Last Jedi. Based on the fact that people can't tell the difference between the two and they're picking the same nominees themselves in both of those categories, we might be headed towards what the BAFTAs do, which is just having one sound category, right? It's possible. Well, what would be the argument it's against that? Possible. There are different people mm-hmm. again because I, I mentioned the roles that yes. you have. You know, the mixers we didn't talk about, but the re-recording mixers and the production sound mixers are typically nominated on that ballot. Right. In two cases this year, two people are double nominated: right. Julian Slater, who was the supervising sound editor, sound designer, and re-recording mixer on Baby Driver, mm-hmm. and Ren Kleiss, who had the same roles on Star Wars: The Last Jedi. But everyone else, again, they're different teams. And in the case of the BAFTAs, you see them both on the ballot. So what do we think is going to happen here? I know the motion picture sound editors gave their top Golden Reel awards to Dunkirk and Blade Runner. They each took one big one. And then for sound mixing on Sunday, we will hear from the Cinema Audio Society, which is their big precursor award. What's your sense, though, are and those... And Dunkirk won the BAFTA is probably and also Dunkirk worth mentioning. And Dunkirk won the BAFTA, exactly, where, again, there is a unified sound category. So what's your sense of what's going to happen here based on whatever information we have at this point? It feels like, at the moment, like Dunkirk could take them both, but I could see scenarios where there's a split or where others go. I mean, they're they're very different projects. One fun fact, mm-hmm. really, about Dunkirk that's worth mentioning is re-recording mixer Greg Landacre is actually retiring. He's a three-time Oscar winner already. So he might go out with number um, four. And 207 features wow. under his belt. And he decided he was going to retire after Dunkirk. So this is his last go around. His first Oscar was for The Empire Strikes Back. Wow. That's so he has career. he has an interesting story behind yeah. him. But again, I mean, they're, you know, Dunkirk, Baby Driver, these are very different movies, but mm-hmm. they're all outstanding and really supported the story and what the director wanted to convey to the audience. We'll see. Yeah. Let's move to best production design. We have as the nominees Beauty and the Beast. Blade Runner 2049, Darkest Hour, Dunkirk, and The Shape of Water. Once again, we have double nominees, but this time within the same category, which is a rarity. I think the last time this happened in this category was 25 years ago. This time it is for Sarah Greenwood, the production designer, and Kate Spencer, the set decorator, nominated together for both Beauty and the Beast and Darkest Hour, but not, I think, expected to win for either, right? Not at the moment. You and I have talked about it, and I think we both have a sense that it's between Shape of Water and Blade Runner. Mm. I might lean toward Shape of Water right. a little bit. And I'm, I've been out on a limb a little, I think, feeling like it could go to Blade Runner. But, I mean, look, they each have certain things in their corner, right? We have for Shape of Water, one, the Art Directors Guild for period piece, which has typically been a great predictor, as well as the BAFTA and Critics' Choice Awards, which are more all-encompassing. But Blade Runner won the Art Directors Guild Award for Fantasy, which sometimes plays out. And what's worth mentioning is in the last five years, if you look at the Art Directors Guild, twice the winner of the period category went on to win the Oscar. That was in the case of Great Gatsby and Grand Budapest Hotel. Mm -hmm. Once in the last five years, it went to Fantasy Film, which Mm -hmm. was for Mad Max Fury Road. And last year, it went to the winner of the contemporary category, which was La La Land. Yeah, that's an interesting one because there's a 
sort of a assumption that sometimes these categories that people maybe know less about are just treated as coattail categories. So the movie in the category that people overall like the most sometimes will just get voted on right down the ballot. But in this category, that's not really borne out by recent history because just four years ago, for instance, The Great Gatsby beat 12 Years a Slave in this category. 12 Years a Slave, of course, went on to win Best Picture. You have similar things that have happened You know, two years before that. Hugo beat the artist in this category, the reverse outcome for Best Picture. And the year before that, Alice in Wonderland beat The King's Speech, whereas The King's Speech went on to win Best Picture, of course. So this is not, people do have, whether it's the correct one or not, they do have their own conception of what great production design actually is. And perhaps for others of these below line categories as well, more more so than others, they they come to it with a sense that it shouldn't necessarily just go with the movie that they then think is also the best movie. Moving on to best cinematography, we have nominated Blade Runner 2049, Darkest Hour, Dunkirk, Mudbound, and The Shape of Water. And before you break this one down, I guess this is as good a point as any for reasons that will become clear, to note that with all of these categories, the names of the individuals who are eligible for the Oscar, who are nominated for the Oscar, do not appear on the Oscar ballot. The only individuals' names that appear on the Oscar ballot are those of the acting nominees. So how might that impact a category like Best Cinematography this year, let's say, Carolyn? Well, I mean, as you point out, it, it certainly could if the voter is not familiar with the work and the individuals behind the work. Although this year, I would say at least two of the nominees have certainly received a lot of attention. Certainly Rachel Morrison for Mudbound. Rachel is the first female mm-hmm. cinematographer to be nominated in that category. And she certainly received a lot of attention for her work on that film, which mm-hmm. was which was really terrific. And then the other is, of course, Roger Deakins, yeah. the great Roger Deakins, who this is his 14th nomination, and he is uh, to win. the <laughs> most nominated cinematographer without a win. Roger received the American Society of Cinematographers Feature Award. That was actually his fourth win <laughs> from the ASC. So, so much for their predictability. And, well, he also won his fourth BAFTA. He won the BAFTAs as well for Blade Runner. <laughs> right. So he, he certainly seems to have momentum behind him, although, again, the, he's won each of those four times right. already, and he's still looking for his first Oscar. Although yeah. it certainly feels like there are a lot of people paying attention and rooting for him. Yeah, and he has the Critics' Choice Award this year as well. But I guess to come back to my point, Roger Deakins' name is not on the ballot, neither is Rachel Morrison's. And so if you didn't pay attention to that publicity, which he's had for Roger's had each time he's been nominated in recent years, you know, when are you going to give this guy his award? That has not necessarily helped him with, you know, some people forget who worked on what. And I guess that's really, in the Academy's view, why their names don't appear on the ballot. They don't want it to be about individuals. They want it to be about the work. And this actually might be a year when that is not a problem for Deacons because the work on Blade Runner is so extraordinary from a visual standpoint that I don't think people care who did it. And it just may work out for him this year, which would be really cool. I think that would be for for those of us who are aware of the fact that he's been waiting so long and, and been so deserving for many times, that would be 
like kind of a Kevin O'Connell win last year where I don't think most people understood why some people in the room were so excited, although I guess it was, what was it, his 21st? That was his 21st. On his 21st nomination, this guy, a sound mixer, won last year. So that'll be this year's version of that, perhaps. It's going to be an interesting race to watch this year because certainly, again, there's a lot of attention on Rachel and certainly a lot of attention on Roger. There's three other very mm-hmm. talented cinematographers in there. And, you know, in this case, I think it's a very competitive category because I think the work across the board was really strong. And especially maybe Dunkirk, where you have the aviation scenes, you have water sequences, so many things that really are visually impressive about that, even to somebody like me who doesn't know, like somebody like you, all the ins and outs of cinematography. It's just a very visually cool movie, especially, you know, when you think about that many people saw it on an IMAX or in a way that really emphasized its visual mastery. Overall, cinematography was a very strong category this year, in addition to the work on Mudbound and Blade Runner, which we talked about already. Certainly, Hoyte Van Hoytema's work on Dunkirk was terrific and certainly very ambitious and got a lot of attention. The work on The Shape of Water, Dan Lauston's work, was beautiful and really supported the story perfectly. Mm-hmm. And you could also say the same with Darkest Hour. Bruno Debanel's work was beautiful, too. It's going to be a competitive category. Let's move on to Best Makeup and Hairstyling. We have three nominees only in this category. The nominees are Darkest Hour, Victoria and Abdul, and Wonder. What stands out to you about this? Right now, it feels like Darkest Hour is the one to watch. Certainly, the transformation of Gary Oldman into Winston Churchill was really remarkable. Mm -hmm. And this is a Best Picture candidate and a very admired film it seems like that's where the most of the attention is in that category at the moment. Yeah, it really reminds me of The Iron Lady, which didn't have the advantage of being nominated for Best Picture, but had a similar central character that needed to be transformed into someone who looked nothing like her, Meryl Streep, into Margaret Thatcher in that case, and ended up winning just a few years ago. And then again, also, as you pointed out, Darkest Hour this year is the sole Best Picture nominee in the category, which I think helps. It means a lot more people perhaps saw it. Certainly a lot more people liked it than its competitors. And also Gary Oldman at every opportunity has talked up the work, particularly of Kazuhiro Suji. He said he would not have made the movie if Suji had not been willing to do the makeup for it. He's talked about the fact that he spent hours and hours and hours every day in makeup. Now, at the same time, people in the makeup community, like Rick Baker, have said they haven't seen anything in years like the work on Wonder, but they are a clear minority of the people who will actually be deciding this category. So I think that probably works the advantage of of Darkest Hour. Let's go now to Best Film Editing, which is a very interesting category this year and really every year because it's not totally clear what they go for. They often seem to respond to war movies. Like last year, they went for Axel Ridge. Sometimes it just seems a matter of showy editing, fast cuts, like a few years ago with Whiplash. This year, the nominees are Baby Driver, Dunkirk, I, Tanya, The Shape of Water, and Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. What indicators do we have to go on this year? Well, American Cinema Editors' Eddie Awards is one that I keep an eye on. In 10 of the last 15 years, Mm -hmm. the winner of the Best Edited Dramatic Feature, Eddie, went on to win the Oscar in film editing. 
that would be Dunkirk in this case. Mm -hmm. Lee Smith, Chris Nolan's longtime editor, mm -hmm. won that category this year. The other narrative feature category, which was for comedy feature, went to I, Tanya, And then Baby Driver received the BAFTA. Well, yeah, and the BAFTA has its own impressive stat. I think eight of the last 10 BAFTA winners have gone on to win at the Oscars. And further to the case of Baby Driver winning here, you've you've pointed out to me a few examples recently of movies that weren't necessarily serious best picture contenders, as Baby Driver certainly is not, but still prevailed in this category. There are two in particular in recent years that would suggest that the editing, even of a movie that people would never consider for best picture, can be so impressive that the voters will go for it. What were those that you would One talk? that comes to mind for me is certainly the Bourne Ultimatum. In that case, it was nominated in three categories, film editing, sound editing, and sound mixing, which are the same three categories that Baby Driver is nominated for. And Born Ultimatum did win all three of those categories. Now, there's a little bit of a difference in the fact that Chris Rouse, the editor of Born Ultimatum, did win the Eddie for for dramatic feature, and he did win the BAFTA on his way to that Oscar. Mm -hmm. Baby Driver does have the BAFTA, of course. Mm -hmm. So you, it's not exactly apples to apples at this point, but certainly something to keep in mind. And then you, you mentioned Whiplash. I mean, that's another example of one that that last scene, people really paid attention to the editing. But that one was nominated for Best Picture. The one that I actually was referencing as the second here was The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, where was not predicted by many people or I think many precursor awards, and yet it showed up at the Oscars and beat some stiff competition. Do you have any recollection of what the story could have been there? I don't know what the factor was that put that through. I mean, it was certainly an exceptional, a really well-edited movie. It was nominated for an Eddie. It was not nominated for a BAFTA, so it didn't have the the signs before the Oscars, though the editors, Kurt Baxter and Angus Wall, actually won the Oscar in film editing two years in a row because the year before they had won for The Social Network, right. which is probably worth noting. Sure. Although, again, voters did not see or remember their names necessarily because they weren't on the ballot. So it's a weird thing there. Let's come now, last but not least, to a category that I think in some ways is the one that your area of expertise most encompasses, and that is visual effects. The nominees... Four best visual effects this year are Blade Runner 2049, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, Kong Skull Island, Star Wars The Last Jedi, and War for the Planet of the Apes. It seems to me that this award fairly often, particularly in the era of really great VFX in recent years, has often corresponded with the winner of best cinematography because perhaps people just can't quite tell what's cinematography and what's visual effects in movies. Life of Pi and Hugo are two examples. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is this year, there's only one film that is actually nominated for both of those awards, and that is Blade Runner 2049. Should we zero in on that factoid, or, or are there others that should supersede it? Well, Blade Runner also won the BAFTA for visual effects, and I would say keeping an eye on Blade Runner and keeping an eye on War for the Planet of the Apes. Those two seem to be the ones that are getting the most attention right now. Yeah. There's a real oddity about the whole Planet of the Apes franchise in this category, right? They every time do very well with the visual effects community. This year, for instance, I think they were the dominant force at the VES Awards, Visual Effects Society Awards, and then they go on to the full academy. And the last two times an Apes movie got nominated for Best Visual Effects. It was after winning the top prize of the Visual Effects Society, and then what happened at the Oscars? In six of the last 10 years, 
the winner of the VES award went on to win the Academy Award. Two notable exceptions are the first two Planet of the Apes <laughs> movies. Um, of this recent tr- reboot trilogy. All three, the Visual Effects Society Awards of this year obviously have already happened. All three of the Planet of the Apes movies won the top Visual Effects Society Award. The previous two did not go on to win the Academy Award. So we'll see what happens in a few weeks. A lot of people in the community are certainly surprised by that because the work was really exceptional. It was. And I'll tell you, the thing that's come up with a few voters I've talked to, including one who we will be citing in our annual Brutally Honest ballot in our Oscar issue and then others that will run online, is that people have have said, and it's not fair to these guys who worked so hard on on War for the Planet of the Apes, but they said, We've seen this before. They've done this before on the prior installments. What's new here? And they say to some extent the same thing with Star Wars because there are some recurrent characters there and and effects there to some extent with Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 because, again, of course, there was one before. I guess less so with Kong Skull Island because it's been a while since we saw a Kong movie. Peter also, Jackson's was the last one, which won an Academy Award won in an visual Academy Award effects. In, <laughs> back in 2006 or something. Blade Runner, we haven't had a Blade Runner movie in like 35 years. So I guess what would you say to the people who justify not voting for an Apes movie in this category by saying, you know, they're just going back to the well? Well, each, each movie, they really have raise the bar on the work and this year again is no exception they've they've definitely done work on you know the fur and you know a lot of very might be subtle to people but you know to many people but certainly visual effects the people in the visual effects community notice what they're doing and notice the difficulty yeah (laughs) and the real attention to detail in these films whether the entire Academy sees that and recognizes them is another question. Blade Runner has arguably one of the most high-profile visual effects of the year, which is the digital Sean Young, Yes, where they did a head replacement on a body double. Doing something similar to that with Peter Cushing was previously enough to help Rogue One, a Star Wars story, get nominated in this category a year ago, but not enough to put it over the top. It will be interesting to see what happens this year. With regard to that point, though, keep in mind, they're obviously looking at the entirety of the work. There's the environments and models and miniatures. But it's also tricky with the visual effects category because it's not just the visual effects branch that's voting. And there have certainly been some surprises over the year. Ex Machina a few Mm. years ago was, you know, a perfect example Mm. of that where I I don't think... Nobody saw that coming. I mean, in fact, I think... It beat Star Wars The Force Awakens, Mad Max Fury Road, The Revenant with the bear, and The Martian. I don't. That's still going to be one of the great mysteries to me about how that happened. And in fact, also, I think only the second time in the history of that category that a Best Picture nominated film that was nominated in that category lost to a film in that category that was not nominated for Best Picture. Because again, most people know and pay relatively little attention to VFX, and I think often just sort of treat that as a coattail category. The work on all five films are are really good. Yeah. And I think what we're saying, we're talking about the visual effects category, but I think you could say this about a lot of the crafts categories is you just don't know yeah. <laughs> how the overall academy will vote. Just a few quick notes on the visual effects category. Should Blade Runner win? That would give John Nelson, the visual effects supervisor, his second Oscar. He previously won for Ridley Scott's Gladiator. 
Okay. And in War for the Planet of the Apes, should that win, Joe Letary, the senior visual effects supervisor, would win his fifth Oscar in visual effects. And also on War, it's worth noting that Dan Lemon, who's on the ballot for War for the Planet of the Apes, won last year on the ballot for The Jungle Book. So in some ways, it's a massive community, the VFX community, particularly in the post-Lord of the Rings era when it's just become huge. And yet, we're seeing a lot of the same characters year after year. I don't know what to make of that, but that's for another discussion. It's a big community and a close-knit community at the same time. Yes. Well, thank you for helping to make sense of it, Carolyn Giardina. Thank you. And now for my interview with Sam Rockwell. Over the course of our conversation at the Fest Parker Doubletree Hotel in Santa Barbara, the 49-year-old and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them. How a complicated family situation led him from San Francisco to New York and to the acting profession. What his outlook was during the many years he spent working odd jobs in order to remain an actor. And the many auditions that almost led to roles in projects like Scent of a Woman, Dead Poet Society, Unforgiven, and ER, but didn't. How he always made the most of great opportunities that did come his way. Complex parts in projects like The Green Mile, Moon, and Conviction, winning him the admiration of peers and critics, but never quite making him a household name. Why so many fellow actors have wanted him to be a part of their projects when they step behind the camera, among them George Clooney, Ron Howard, Tony Goldwyn, Clark Gregg, Nat Faxon and Jim Rash, John Favreau, Robin Wright, and Ethan Hawke, and what he has taken away from those experiences... What is at the root of his close friendship and collaboration with Martin McDonough, who cast him in the 2010 Broadway production of A Handing in Spokane, the 2012 film Seven Psychopaths, and 2017's Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, and who has called him, quote, the greatest actor of his generation, close quote, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Sam, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks. We always begin by asking our guests where they were born and raised and what their folks did for a living. It sounds to me from some of the reading I did to prep that you really kind of have it in the genes, huh? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, my parents were actors and my dad also did a lot of odd jobs. So did my mom. My mom sang telegrams at one point. She worked in restaurants. My I've worked in restaurants a lot and I bar backed and bus tables. My father worked for the post office. He was a union rep for the supermarket clerks. In fact, he would he would protect some of them from sexual harassment. I really? he would go help them, you know, if the manager was provocative or whatever and he he would go in and he was the union rep. Wow. And he was also a union organizer for the printing union and he was a printer. He drove a cab at one point and he was an actor and he still acts. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So this was your, were born and raised in San Fran, is that right? I was born in Daly City. We moved to the Bronx and then we moved back to San Francisco. And then my parents separated when I was five. And then I traveled around a lot. My dad was a single parent from like five to nine and then he remarried. And it sounds like, this may be wrong, but sort of the first moment where it occurred to you maybe acting is something worth pursuing is when, you know, in one of these instances, I guess for like a month a year, you go visit your mom and you saw her doing something as an actor is that right i did i i was in a i was in a play with her i was in two plays with her how young an age i was 10 the first time and then 11 the following summer i would visit her in the summer and they threw me into one of the plays who were you playing i played humphrey bogart and a sketch about casablanca I played rick <laughs> at 10. rick at 10 and i played flo zigfield 
Nice, nice. And so what was it? I mean, was it seriously a kind of thing where even at that age you knew this is something you would want to continue to pursue? Yeah, I think I got it in my... I was having fun as a kid, and I liked the lifestyle, you know? I liked what they, what I, what I saw, the adventure of the actor's life was even the struggling actor's life. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I went to a, a performing arts high school, kind of a low-budge fame school in uh, San Francisco. And then I, when I was 18, I moved to New York, and I pursued acting, and I did all these restaurant jobs, sublets and stuff. And then when I was about 23, I decided to study acting finally. Well, first, let us let me just ask you about yeah. those five years in between where you get out there, yeah. and it does sound like you really did a lot of odd jobs, right? I yes. Mean, can you yeah. share what some of those were? Yes, I was an intern for a private investigator at one point. <laughs> Again, I bar back, I bust tables. I did, I mean, odd, weird jobs. Like, I think I was an elevator operator for a party once. You know, you get these, like, day jobs, yeah. like, a, a, you know, break sheetrock for a day. <laughs> or I remember going into a person's house who had died and we had to clean it up and we were wearing masks we were paid for the day there was this kind of like service right and me and this guy mark ryan would get these jobs for the day and there were these very strange jobs and that was one of them and that was not fun <laughs> and then um, you're going in for like auditions on, uh, uh, when I and guess. then i well at, back then there was the you know i don't know they have the paper backstage still backstage was the yeah. paper and we would look for the and you go on these cattle calls, you right. know. Sometimes you'd even be in a room with the other actors reading in front of them. Ugh. And and it would be literally a cattle call like that. Or there was some crazy stuff, you know. Commercial auditions were really pretty wild, too. I did a lot of commercials, and that was good money. So that was kind of like the thing that was paying the bills for those Yeah, that years. would come in like the lottery every once in a while, you know, and just pay <laughs> the rent. So what happened at 23? Who did you study with because you you know there was well, not college acting or acting school technically but you did have a really important teacher right for a couple of years yes i did william esper and there's where i met a woman named maggie flanagan and my current acting coach terry knickerbocker huh. who is who's I've been coaching with for 20 years and they were subbing for bill bill was away a lot the first year and so i met terry and maggie and I did a cold reading class with Maggie. And then Terry, I had an audition for Box of Moonlight. And I worked on the audition with Terry. And me and my friend Yule Vasquez would work with him on auditions. And I worked on Box of Moonlight. And then I got the part. And after a few callbacks. And then when I got the part, I said, well, you know, let's work on it. Now that I got the part, it's a big part. My first lead role, really. Yeah. One of my first lead roles. And so he became my coach from there on. I saw somewhere that Meisner was what you would describe your yeah. primary technique. That's what you were learning with these guys? Yeah, William Esper was the East Coast protege of Sanford Meisner. And his teachers and Terry and Suzanne and, and, and Maggie have become the protégés of Bill. Mm-hmm. You know, Jeff Goldblum teaches Meisner out here. I don't know if he still does. He teaches Meisner technique out here. So that was all... You know, they had the method, which is Strasbourg, right. and then they had Stella Adler, and then they had Meisner, and they all learned their stuff from, you know, Stanislavski. The method, I think people have the gist that sort of, yeah, that's, you know, your own, was, people have a sense of what that is. What's yeah. Meisner, if you had to sum it up? Well, you know, it's all the same stuff, you know, it's just good 
technique. Good work is good work, you know. I think there's a misconception about the phrase, the method, mm -hmm. you know. I think it's become kind of folklore now, is that you, the method means that you're, you're living the character. And I guess the closest thing we have to that is, is somebody like Daniel Day-Lewis. Mm -hmm. I, I don't really know what the method means anymore. I think now it's become kind of like folklore. Mm -hmm. What I do know is that what they call the method, refer to the method as, as Lee Strasberg's actor studio mm -hmm. and where he trained people. And the basic difference between Strasberg and Meisner, and I think Stella Adler is that, especially Meisner, I don't know a lot about Stella Adler, but mm -hmm. the main difference, I think, aside from listening, and there's this repetition exercise you do in Meisner, which, which is about listening, there's a lot of stuff in Meisner, but one of the things is before a scene, you will do what is called an emotional preparation before you enter a room or something or you might have an activity or something, but for getting emotional, instead of the what happened to you, it might be the what if. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Strasbourg, it's the what happened. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're literally tapping into your own past and trying to find stuff to stir you up from your past. And Meisner's argument to that is, you haven't experienced everything, mm -hmm. you as a person, so if you, are playing a heroin addict, you're not really going to do heroin, hopefully. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes you might have a block with a with a real memory, mm -hmm. and you, it might be too close to home, and so you might have to imagine something else. This clicked with you right away, or did it take well, Yeah, I think I kind of still probably think about real stuff, too. What Meisner stresses is the imagination can you can elaborate on something and and so even if you have a bad memory your imagination can make it even worse mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. and so you can use something and and it might strike a chord mm -hmm. in you and you know if you think of your dog dying or something and that might or you know if you think about something that might make you laugh or yeah. whatever it is that you need to get to that place you know so before Box of Moonlight, which you mentioned as sort of a, a big break, I guess yeah. that's coming out in 96, or that was, you know, I guess really Sundance 97, that's where it, it started to get noticed. Yeah. Prior to that, you did go out for a lot of other parts that could have been a big break, right? I, yeah. And I want to just run off a few that sounded interesting. I don't know if they're all true, and you can't trust everything that's out there, but maybe there's some stories yeah, in there. Yeah. Let's go chronologically. Dead Poet Society, Scent of a Woman, Unforgiven, and then the part that Noah Wiley ended up playing on ER. Is that all? That is correct. They're yes. correct. I've, I've auditioned for all of those, yeah. And did you feel that you got really close to any of them? Any kind of fun um, stories there? I got close. I got a little close to the quick and the dead. I painted these squirt guns black, <laughs> and this is pre-9-11, and I went through security with these very realistic-looking <laughs> squirt guns that look like 44 Magnums, because right. I had been practicing all weekend twirling right, right. The, the pistols, the fake pistols, and they stopped me. I was late for the flight, and they stopped me, and they, you know... It, if it was post 9-11, I wouldn't have made the plane. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I forgot if they let me take the squirt guns on the plane or not. I, I, I don't know. But I needed them for this scene to, to read with Sam, Sam Raimi. 
And then I think Sharon Stone gave a portion of her paycheck to Leonardo DiCaprio, who then got the part because <laughs> he was very famous. And, right. But yes, I got a little close to Unforgiven. And then... This would have been the young guy. Who the young says, guy. And I think they said Clint doesn't like props. I had a, like a whiskey bottle and a <laughs> you know, fake pistol. And, you know, I was into twirling the guns and stuff. And then, yeah, what's the other? Dead Poet Society. I don't know if I, how close I got on that. ER, they thought I was crazy. I came in with a lab coat. <laughs> And, and not the needle part, but the plastic part of the hypodermic needle. And I must have looked like a nutcase. Where did the idea of bringing props to auditions come from? Is that an Esper you know, thing? It just was a thing that I did, and I got a lot of complaints about it, like too many props. <laughs> I would often take newspaper print and put my fingers on the newspaper, the tips of my fingers, and then apply it to my face, the print. <laughs> To make like five o'clock shadow if I had to play like a... Because you had sort of a baby you know, face. Yeah, if I had to play like, you know, the head thug or, you know, <laughs> the Italian gangster or, you know, whatever it was, you know. The, but even then you were, it seems like a pretty self-effacing guy because what happened, I mean, with Scent of a Woman, that's an interesting case. You kind of dissuaded them from giving it to you. That's exactly... How did you know that? Did uh, I say that? In we might have talked about it in the 2010 yeah, interview. Yeah, yeah, I did. I think it was Alan Lewis or somebody... And we both looked at each other and we're like, yeah, I'm not right for this, right? <laughs> you know, let's call me in. I think she cast Scorsese stuff, so I was like, you know what? Call me in for a Scorsese movie next time. <laughs> you're bartering with her. Yeah, I was like, she was like, yeah, you're not right. You know, I probably was more right for the Phil Hoffman part, and I should have probably tried to make a play for that part, but nobody. So you could've... told them though, yeah, you should nope. call Chris O'Donnell. No, I didn't tell him to call Chris O'Donnell, but I definitely knew that I wasn't right for the right, Chris O'Donnell right, role. Right, right. I just wasn't right. And, and and Phil, of course, killed that part, you know, in the in the in the other part. So eventually you do get to this Box of Moonlight in nineteen ninety six, and to remind people this is sort of like a man child of a character and it did make a big splash at yes. Sundance, and I just want to quote in the New York Times there was just an article sort of setting the scene of what's going on at Sundance and at the time, you would have liked to have been, you know, it must have been a cool thing to have something nice said, said about you by this person. But Harvey Weinstein, who at the time was, you know, on top of the world, said in reference to you, they asked him if he'd seen the movie or whatever. He said about Sam Rockwell, quote, he's a movie star, close quote. And this wow. was before anyone else was really saying that. So can you just share from, from your perspective what happened as a result of Box Moon? Like, did it actually change things for you at all to be noticed now for the first time, really? Yeah, it did change stuff. And I got out of that, I got Lawn Dogs and Safe Men, although we all auditioned for Safe Men, mm -hmm. including Phil Hoffman. Mm -hmm. um, and Phil Hoffman actually got a part in it and turned it down, I think. But yeah, Lawn Dogs came out of Box of Moonlight. And then Jerry and Tom came out of Box of Moonlight. Saul Rubinick saw Box of Moonlight and cast me in Jerry and Tom. And that was the first time I'd ever got like an offer without reading. I just met with Saul. And he's like, you want to do this? And I was like, yeah, you, you, you want to, uh, do you want me to audition? He's like, no, I just wanted to meet you, make sure you're not crazy. <laughs> so that's one step. And then, you know, they're, they're obviously over the, the next few years were a number of other, it seems like, I guess, incremental things, probably a big one, Wild Bill in yes. Green Mile, this kind of crazy racist inmate. That was, that was exciting. Yeah, that yeah. was really exciting. One I thing that Roger Ebert yeah. wrote around that time was that 
First of all, he said you seem to him like a, quote, latter-day version of Christopher Walken. Not <laughs> not all the time, but when you need him, he's your go-to guy for weirdness, close quote. Did you find that you were being approached for a lot of kind of eccentric guys at that point? And why would that have been? Well, you know, people people like to label, yeah. you know, and, and it's that's a compliment to be compared with Christopher Walken, who's a friend of mine, actually. Mm-hmm. I actually talked to him today. Really? In fact, yeah. We've done two things together. We did a play with him. And I remember you do quite a good impression of him as yes, well. Yes, yes, I, I, I do probably. He, I, he probably wouldn't think it was good, but <laughs> he's a lovely guy. Yeah. And uh, he's a great, great actor, obviously. But he's, he's endlessly entertaining. But I think that people, you know, like to label actors. And it's interesting. I went to the Sundance Festival with The Way, Way Back. Mm-hmm. And I think Steve... Carell had played the he'd done the office character mm-hmm. and he'd done 40 year old virgin and he'd done maybe little miss little sunshine, miss sunshine. Right. so he was used to playing you know odd characters too but i don't know if he ever got like the the adjectives that i got like i played some pretty dark characters and i we remember we went and we did a q a and there was an australian woman who said you know you're really creepy steve <laughs> And and Steve was kind of, you know, he was a little hurt by that. He was like, he says, well, that kind of hurts my feelings. Uh, I kind of like my character. And says, well, yeah, I think you're really creepy. We went back. We got went off stage. And and I said, yeah, now you know how I feel right. every time. Because I- <laughs> what were some of the labels that you would get? Well, I would get creepy. And, you know, I mean, you know, the guy in the Green Mile, obviously, or. You know, it's funny when you, it's also funny when you do a movie that's dramatic and they go, hey, you're that funny guy. You're hilarious. You know, <laughs> you know, like if you see Conviction, you go, right. that was hilarious. You know, <laughs> Jesus I, mean, Christ. I mean, you know, people say strange things. Right. And then people say very beautiful things. You know, they see movies like Moon, if they're knowledgeable about oh, we're films. Oh, that for sure. Yeah. yeah. And they, and I get a lot of love for movies like that and yep. Snow, Snow Angels. But people say odd things. It's interesting. It's interesting. But you know, I I mostly get a lot of a lot of beautiful movie love. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so like Walken, I think early on, because you know, for whatever reason, people yeah. were seeing you as a bit eccentric. That often ends up meaning supporting parts or ca- what they you know character. This guy's a character actor or whatever, yeah. which is which I yeah. think is generally meant as a very good compliment. But yes, it's also it can be limiting, I would think. And then along, yes, Alice and Jenny, I were talking about that. Yeah, I think. And look bit. where you two are this year. So I mean, it's a, I mean, I guess it seems, though, that like in order for somebody to see you outside of that box, it makes sense that it would be another actor who would recognize that that shouldn't be seen as a limitation. So along comes. George Clooney, right? With yes. Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. Yes, yes. Just to remind people, you're playing Chuck Barris, who, you know, was game show host, but also maybe something a little more, a little darker as well. Yeah, yeah. But where did that come from? Because he really went to bat for you, right? Against Merrimax, again, Weinstein, and against yes. other people who were skeptical. Yes, I was up against big movie stars and uh, screen tested for that. Harvey insisted that I screen test. So his original assessment had had receded in his memory, I guess. Yes, yes. And there was another prominent movie star, I won't say who, that was screen testing for the part. And Harvey insisted that we do that. And he did not want me for that. But once, you know, once I got it, he he was behind it. But he, Soderbergh and Clooney were, they were the ones that championed me, Clooney especially. Yeah, and Clooney... 
I met Clooney on Welcome to Collinwood, mm-hmm. and Soderbergh was producing that, and so was George. And then George did a cameo. He came to Cleveland with the Russo brothers, yep. who did, you know, Captain America yep. and yep. Arrested Development. So the Russos went on to do big stuff too. But George and I met in Cleveland. And as he was leaving, I remember he saying, I, I might have something for you. I'll, we'll talk about it later. And then Ben Cosgrove called me when we wrapped and said, George wants to send you a script. And then I went to do a play. I did Zoo Story and Dumbwaiter in Williamstown mm-hmm. with Jelko Ivanic, who's in Three Billboards. He plays the other deputy. <laughs> and I did this play, and I took Confessions of a Dangerous Mind and sort of threw it under the couch mm-hmm. didn't read it because I was doing a play and I had a six page monologue and then I got the call right as the play was ending he says George calls he says we gotta get you on a plane you gotta we gotta get you out here for a screen <laughs> test uh, it's just a formality you know don't worry about it you're gonna do the part mm-hmm. it's just Harvey wants you to do this thing and I was like oh man I'm doing this play I need a little time you know I, can you guys send me some gong shows or something and he's like yeah yeah okay well I'll delay it a week or something and you gotta, we gotta get you out here and so I was like, fuck, so I better read this <laughs> script, you know? And were you thinking that the part you were getting was not what it was? Did you realize No, what it I was? knew it was Chuck. Yeah. And I, I had actually met Brian Singer an, a year earlier to play Chuck Barris. And then they gave it to Johnny Depp. And George was attached to play that part and just as a producer. Mm-hmm. And then next thing I know, a year or so later, George was directing it. Right. But so many people were talked about, you know, Robert Downey Jr., Ed Norton was talked about, Sean Penn. A lot of people were talked for Chuck Barris. So you get that, a, a part like that where yeah. it's a lot of meat yeah, and a lot of scenes and a lot of, pay, you know, whatever. You, you're the main man. And that was somewhat of a change from the stuff that was immediately before where you're the, I guess maybe it's a appropriate metaphor to say, like, the relief pitcher who comes in and has maybe only two innings that they demand from you, but you have to kill them, and you had been doing that. So that was before Confessions. And then after Confessions for a few more years, I think it was maybe not parts of that size again, right, for a little while, maybe until something like Choke or Snow Angels or something like that. So were you content if life had just gone along and you were primarily that relief pitcher, the pinch hitter, the guy who is great at doing something that is not necessarily being the main guy in a, in a movie? Well, yeah, I mean, a career is an interesting thing. It's like, you know what they say, you want to you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans, mm-hmm. you know? It's <laughs> like, you really, only power you really have as an actor is the word no. Mm-hmm. You don't really have any other power, so you do the best you can, you know? And you, you just, you, sometimes you have to go to work and you try to mix it up. And you want to work with good directors, so you'll show up for Ron Howard or somebody mm-hmm. in a supporting role. Frost Nixon. Yeah, yeah, because it's a good supporting mm-hmm. role, and it doesn't always have to be you're playing Nixon. You mm-hmm. know, you can be playing a juicy supporting role. But mm-hmm. it was important for me to do leads, and I did a lot. And some movies they saw, and some they didn't. So, well, does that bother you, though, when you do something great like Choke and it doesn't really yeah. get widely seen? Yeah, it, it, it or is. Or Snow Angels, you know? Snow Angels, yeah. Snow Angels, we were really proud of that one, you know. And, I mean, actually, people did see Choke and mm-hmm. people like more movies like The Winning Season mm-hmm. I was bummed about because mm-hmm. I saw, I really loved, I worked really hard. I interviewed tons of high school basketball coaches, you know, and I watched a lot of documentaries and I even took basketball lessons from... Uh, 
guy named Sean Green who used to play basketball with uh, Phil Hoffman. Mm-hmm. He was an ex-NBA player and, a, and an ex-WNBA player right. I, I trained with. I did a lot of research. Mm-hmm. And I turned down a Broadway play to do that. And I, you know, and I, I'm really proud of it. You know, Rooney mm-hmm. Mara's in it. And it's, it's, it's a really cool movie but you know yeah it's depressing (laughs) so then you go oh well i better go do you know a studio movie and money is only part of the equation it it, you really for me i've turned down a lot of money because i can't do it Mm -hmm. for just the money money's part of the equation but you got to have more than just that are there ever times though and i would think this is the case for anybody where sometimes Every once in a while, like George yeah. says, one for me, one for them or whatever. Like, yeah. I, you certainly don't have that ratio of doing crap on a regular basis. But No, I've been lucky. Yeah. yeah. I've been picky and lucky. And yeah. But there are some that don't seem to fit with the others. Like, if you look at, I'm wondering yeah. what motivates Sam to do Charlie's Angels or Iron Man yeah. 2. Yes. You're entitled to do a paycheck yeah. movie once in a while, if that's what it is. Well, actually, those movies were, were really fun to do. Charlie's Angels could have gone south if it wasn't for <laughs> Mitch Glazer and a few other writers that came in and saved the day. You know, there were like 17 or 20 writers on that, and they were all men, mm-hmm. except for one that was a woman, I think. That's weird. And it's a movie about women, yeah, you know, yeah. and that was a little strange. But I tell you what, that movie was all over the place for a while, but then because of Nancy Javonen and... and McGee and Drew Barrymore especially, they set the tone for that movie. And it, the movie, I think, is a really good popcorn movie, and I think it's really because of Drew. Mm-hmm. And McGee had this kind of vision of what this thing was going to be. In fact, Drew had these these VHS tapes, and she made like this montage of just her favorite stuff. You know, like one scene from Greece and <laughs> all this stuff. And she sent it to all of us to sort of give us like a vibe. Yeah, yeah. Drew Barrymore is a very special person. Mm-hmm. And, and I ended up working with her three times, I you know. Remember, yeah. I, I've worked with some great people like that, you know. Well, with Iron Man 2, just a follow-up there, is it correct that you had at one point been potentially going to play Iron Man? Well, no, I, I got a phone call from Favreau and, and, and Billingsley, Peter Billingsley, mm-hmm. at one point saying, would you be interested in, you know, in this thing, mm-hmm. maybe? And I said, yeah, yeah, sure. I, you know, and, and I remember... This is pre-even Iron Man 1. Yeah. It be, yeah, it wasn't yeah. like, yeah, just to contextualize. Yeah, I remember having a conversation with them about it. And they, and the next thing I know, I think Robert Downey was doing it. My girlfriend was in the first Iron Man and then, mm-hmm. and briefly in the second one. And mm-hmm. she, we had a dinner with, with, she was getting ready to do the junk in and she said, would you come to dinner with me and, and John? And I knew John and, and Robert, we had this dinner and they were very nervous. You know, the movie hadn't come out mm-hmm. and they didn't know what was going to happen. And then it turned out to be this big hit. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It seems like 2009, 2010, you know, like if it, right now you are, popping in the way that I think it should have happened a number of other times. And one of them, it seems to me, I, you know, in doing a post-mortem in a way, like not post-mortem because that's morbid here, but I'm saying going back (laughs) retrospectively here, how did that not happen when you've got in 2009 Moon for Duncan Jones and then also Conviction for Tony Gold? I mean, there was a lot of good feedback, but it maybe in both cases came just a little 
yeah. just a little short of getting the kind of recognition that you're you're now getting. Did you feel that? Like with yeah. those two, you were you, you were awesome. Thanks, man. You know, there's a lot of elements that go into all this. You know, it's luck, and I think we got a Critics' Choice for Conviction. Mm -hmm. Hillary got a SAG. Mm -hmm. Moon was not eligible for the Spirits because it was technically a British film, and they had mm -hmm. changed the rule a couple years before that. So movies like Crouching Tiger and Hidden Dragon would not be nominated now right. for the Spirits. Right. And Should so, we remind people with Moon, you're playing an astronaut, or you know, in a way, several yes. suffering from isolation, loneliness, a lot of this, yes. which apparently it felt like that for you too, right? It was kind of an isolating experience. Yeah, yeah, it was. I was newly dating Leslie mm -hmm. and I was away from her. And then Duncan was dating somebody who was like in Japan. And uh -huh. so we would commiserate. And that was part of our connection to that material, I think, too, is that being that isolation. Mm -hmm. There was a writer's strike too. Right. And so right. the lot, I think it was Shepherdin, was completely like a ghost town. <laughs> So, like, that was also kind of weird. Yeah. yeah. And then with Conviction, which I think it's worth noting, yeah, you played a convict in Green Mile, but this is a very different situation. And I don't know if you'd ever had this yeah. with another character where we're seeing you play this real guy at one point in his life where he's, you know, a pretty happy camper. And then years later, just beaten down, obviously, by being in prison for something he apparently didn't do. So, I mean, that, that whole idea of having to essentially play two different characters in the in the same film, did you yeah. like that? Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was great. Conviction was a special experience because of Tony Goldwyn and Hilary Swank, and that's where I met Liz Himmelstein, who's my dialect coach, who helped me with three billboards yeah, and, yeah. and a lot of stuff. And you know, we had to reshoot some really important scenes in the prison. They were they were destroyed in a in the security the X-rayed at an <laughs> airport at the TSA, and um, we had some very vital scenes that Hillary and I had to reshoot in the oh. prison, and it was really intense. But Hillary Swank's a real badass. Mm -hmm. She's a great, great sparring partner and great actress. I think I remember moderating a Q&A with you guys in Boston. You'd come through and doing something with The Innocence Project, right? Yeah. That was a big part of the... Yeah, yeah. yeah so that was sure. one of these movies Great. that has sort yeah. of a real-world actual applicability. You know, yeah. some movies, uh, Charlie's Angels is fun, but you're not going to necessarily leave thinking, how do I... How do I change the world? Or yeah, yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. But what I want to really ask you about, I had the opportunity to see you in 2015 in New York on Broadway in yes. Sam Shepard's Fool for Love, which oh, was right on, terrific. Dude. I loved it. And I really was also, on top of everything else in it, just blown away by the fact that you could so accurately lasso things every night. <laughs> What's the, for you, and that wasn't even your first time doing Broadway. You had done it also with yeah. Martin McDonough yeah. for... A Behanding in Spokane, 2010, yeah. five years earlier. What does theater and particularly Broadway mean to you? Is that just sort of, you can get away from, it's not going to pay as well. It's going to demand a lot more than movies. So why do it for you? Well, I'm, it's the gym. Yeah. You know, it's like a way to work out where you can't really work out in a movie. When you do a play, you're telling that whole story within two or three hours. And so it keeps you in shape, so to speak. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like the Olympics or mm -hmm. something, you know. Do you uh, find that you get meaty thought-provoking parts in the theater yeah i mean you know this is i think a lot of great people that we were talking about like chris walken and whether it be meryl streep or robert de niro or dustin hoffman or you know gary oldman mm -hmm. comes from the theater mm -hmm. daniel day lewis comes from the theater mm -hmm. and so it's important you know the reason i think francis mcdormand can chew up that monologue in three billboards or chris walken can chew up the watch monologue in Pulp Fiction is because he's already done 
Coriolanus and Hamlet and Streetcar Named Desire. And so, you know, there's a great monologue in Fool for Love. And I did Streetcar up up in Williamstown mm-hmm. and done Zoo Story. And so it prepares you for then when you get a monologue in a film and mm-hmm. you, you know you gotta it makes you sharper mm-hmm. speaking of martin mcdonough how did that first so there's now been three things if i have the numbers correct a behanding in spokane in 2010 then the first film seven psychopaths 2012 yeah and now obviously three billboards how did you two first connect because he's obviously yes. now a, a huge admirer of yours he says you're quote the greatest actor of his generation close quote how did that begin I'm a lucky dude, man. I'm a very lucky man to, to have met Martin McDonough. I met him years ago. I was doing a movie called Piccadilly Jim with Tom Wilkinson and Brenda Blethyn. I think I was doing that, or it was Hitchhiker's Guide or mm-hmm. something. I was over there in London, and I met him at the Landmark Hotel. We were going to talk about this play that I'd seen at the National called Pillow Man, and I saw it with Jim Broadbent, and it blew the top of my head off, you know? Mm-hmm. And... We were talking about me doing it in New York, possibly with Billy Crudup, and and I I think I chickened out. <laughs> and then years later, he came to me with Behanding in Spokane, you know. That's where it started. What makes him so good, particularly as a writer? Because that's how you obviously first cross paths with him. And I mean, there is something with his style that's unique. Yeah, you know guy's just touched or something i don't know he's just really he's special i mean you know he's one of those guys like like tarantino or harold pinter or sam shepherd or mm-hmm. you know it's it, david mammon i mean he's he's up there you know like kenny lonergan i mean he's mm-hmm. really he's got that thing I, I i i don't know how he does it it's just it's incredible and he does seem to have you know when he likes you he really likes you because he had you woody yeah i think even the woman that plays your mother in Three Billboards, you were all, at one point or another, a part of Seven Yeah, she was, Sandy was right? cut out of Psychos. Amanda was in Psychos. Joko was in Seven Psychopaths, yeah. And he's worked with Colin twice. Many times, yeah, or yeah. in Bruges, yeah. yeah. For Three Billboards, how do you just get a script in the mail one day, or what's the process here? Yeah, yeah, I think I got a PDF or something. I read it, and it's just bang, you know? It's like, holy shit. <laughs> You know, that's definitely the reaction I think most people would have to the yeah. story. How yeah. about to your specific character, Mr. Dixon, who is a pretty complicated individual? You know, how would you even describe him if somebody, if your girlfriend said to you, like, all right, so who are you going to potentially play here? Well, you know, if you read, if you start to read it, that maybe the first time, I can't really remember because I, I remember reading it twice and calling Martin, but. The first time you're starting to read Dixon's character, you know, you could even think he's going to be like a Guy Fliegman character, you know, like in Galaxy Quest or like Barney Fife, <laughs> you know, and you go like, I don't know, this is a little goofy, you know, and then as you keep reading, you realize, oh, this is, this is complicated. Mm-hmm. This is, this is, this guy's, there's more to this guy than I thought, you know, and, and then he becomes this almost kind of like anti-hero, mm-hmm. you know. Because he's trying to overcome his own problems, right? Yeah, yeah, and he's got a long way to go. At the By the end of the movie, he's not, you know, he ain't done. He's like <laughs> got a lot of therapy to do. Where in your mind, I mean, I assume even if it's not explicitly in the script, you have to know in your own mind where this rage and hatred and all of that's coming from. Do you just 
invent a backstory? Do you talk to Martin about it? What do you do? You know, Terry Knickerbocker, my, my acting coach, and I, we did a lot of work on it. And I worked with Liz. Liz Himmelstein found me two cops from southern Missouri to tape my lines. And the first cop didn't have enough of an accent. Martin didn't want too strong of an accent. And we agreed that it should be southern Missouri and not northern Missouri. I did a ride along with a guy named Deemer in L.A. Mm-hmm. My friend Chris Messina introduced me to. But Terry and I did a lot of work on it and, and read it with a couple of friends of mine. And we just read it over and over again and, and kind of problem solve. And, and then when I got to Martin, I was ready to go. And Martin and I basically have very pleasant conversations. Martin and I, usually he'll come over or I'll go over to his place and we'll read the whole script mm-hmm. all the way through, just me and him. And he'll kind of say, well, maybe more of this, more of that. Mm-hmm. And then it's just fun kind of conversations about the hair or the mm-hmm. sunglasses or whatever. <laughs> And there was a conversation about the length of my hair. I, I'd been watching cops and seeing these cops and hang out with these cops mm-hmm. in Southern Missouri. And they all had this really short military cut. And I think Martin at one point wanted longer hair. One time, Martin and I were reading Seven Psychopaths at a place in the valley. And I said, you know, maybe we should watch a scene from Taxi Driver. And then we sat down. We ended up watching the whole movie together, you know. So, you know, we're friends. I came across something from a Springfield police detective named Josh McMullen yes. that you guys yes. had been hanging out for a few days there in Southern Missouri, I guess just getting a vibe for what it would be like to be a cop in Southern Missouri. What did you guys encounter? You know, it wasn't heavy action, but we saw some things. Uh, Josh was really beautiful. He took me out two nights and introduced me to a lot of the cops an undercover cop, a captain who t- talked about a lot of interesting stuff. I heard some crystal meth might have been crystal spotted. meth. <laughs> there was a guy who had tracked pedophiles. He was he was fascinating to talk to, and yeah, there was a crystal meth kind of house. They called it like the West Side or something. Mm-hmm. I forgot what they called it, and they said, you know, I want Sam to go to one of the Westy houses or, and check it out. Mm-hmm. And it was a sort of Caucasian, very low income mm-hmm. people who were obviously few of them on drugs there was mm-hmm. a skinny meth addict and then there was a uh, it was just very unsanitary mm-hmm. and the thing you don't realize and when you watch cops or hoarders you know <laughs> is the smell because you, you're watching it on tv you don't right. get the smell so when i went in there there was a mixture of like feces drugs just unsanitary hoarderish kind of cigarette smoke and i mean you couldn't believe the smell it was so i had to get out of there you know after like four minutes i couldn't handle it so what do you take from that when you then go to act or to create a character is it something like just a sense of how after years and years of dealing with that kind of crap a cop could get disillusioned to the point of becoming a pretty angry guy like your character yeah i mean my character is more of a kind of he does he there was a there was a phrase that josh used it was like blue fire or something it was was kind of like over enthusiastic young cop (laughs) energy which is what dixon kind of has he has that kind of over enthusiasm he's a little too you know he's got a hair trigger going on you know or whatever yeah yeah yeah. and and he, he I didn't meet Dixon, you know, I never met right. Dixon. All the cops that I saw were really nice, but but he he did describe that there is a kind of cop out there that has a has a kind of overenthusiastic thing. But they were big boys, you know. <laughs> so and, that that caused some costume changes on your part, right? Yeah, we got some padding in the pants, you know. 
I think we stole that from Colin. He, he had done Pride and Glory. Right, right, right. And maybe Casey had done that once. And and then I, you know, Asheville's a, we were shooting in Asheville for a tax incentive, and Asheville is a, is a beer mecca. <laughs> and so I was drinking a lot of beer and, right. you know, eating hamburgers and stuff That'll like that. That'll fill you out a little yeah. bit. Yeah. So I gained about, I don't know, seven pounds maybe. What about, you know, later in the film, we obviously see something that your character physically goes through and becomes a burn victim. Yeah, Just, oh, I met I met with some some burn victims. A, a skin graft doctor introduced, was kind enough to make a call, and I met some burn victims, and they were very, very generous mm-hmm. with telling me their stories, and, and that was very, very interesting, yeah. How is it to act under all the bandaging well it's a lot of prosthetics Corey and i spent a lot of time together the makeup guy and but that's where that moment came out of with the cigarette lighter there's a moment where i I light a cigarette and i kind of flinch at the the flames a little too high and that was from a story a burn victim uh, had told me Hmm. that he was a little nervous around fire after that i don't know if this is over analyzing things but it seems to me that you know in a way this movie is is almost like a relative of the searchers where you've got john wayne out there trying to get to the bottom of whatever happened to somebody's gone missing possibly yeah. dead except here john wayne is francis mcdormand right, right. i mean yeah so yeah was there ever any discussion i mean she literally physically seems to carry herself in this movie like john wayne you know she's strutting around and did you get that from what just watching it or did you get that from something no, you read i think that she looks like she's behaving like john wayne yeah well she was and she had she actually had pictures of john wayne up in the makeup trailer and that was her idea and then the bandana and the jumpsuit was her idea. The bandana was sort of an homage to Chris Walken and the deer hunter. Hmm. She wanted that jumpsuit. And she wanted the John Wayne thing. She really was into the John Wayne thing. And it, it's there. You see it. You know, it's great. So who does that make you? If John Wayne's, uh, who's, I guess. <laughs> Lee so, Marvin. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, my, my arc was more Barney Fife turns into Travis Bickle, I suppose. <laughs> But I think it's more complicated than that, yeah. I think the funniest, in some ways, most exemplary of who these two characters are seen is yes. when she barges into your police station and, yes. you know, tells you to get your ass over here or whatever it was. And your fellow cop says, you know, don't let her talk to you like that. And you you have this whole bumbling kind of routine. Yeah, 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 totally, and totally. Was the, any of that, it just feels almost improvised. But I, um, It wasn't improvised, although... Josh, the McCullen, the cop, did say Clank instead of County, and Martin liked that. I threw that in there. <laughs> and then there was one thing, get out of my ass, that, that <laughs> Josh said, and Martin seemed to like that. Yeah. Right. Now, what about the stuff with this actress, Sandy Martin, who plays your mother? That's priceless stuff as well. There's just this whole, you guys play it straight, but it's hilarious. Some yeah. of it, and, at yeah. times. Yeah, 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 it's hilarious. I think she's a actor studio, tra- you know, like a very experienced yes, actress yeah, herself. Yeah, been around a long time, yeah. yeah, yeah. How long were you actually working together? We worked with Liz Himmelstein on the dialect, and then we we just showed up and did it, you know. In fact, one day I was really sick. I, got a, I had a temperature when I had to come in and take the DNA out of my fingernails in the mm-hmm. in the bathroom and she really carried me through that day because she brought the emotion to the scene mm-hmm. and i was kind of struggling you know but that was kind of good for the scene mm-hmm. that to have the fever actually was there one scene that was most challenging to you or complex i would think that maybe the the whole scene leading up to the removing the dna the whole thing in the bar that's a great scene yeah, it's I a love great that scene. scene i love that but scene. it was you had to do a lot and play it sort of yeah boozily or whatever you know? yeah 
Yeah, that was a lot of fun. That was, that was a lot of fun to do that. Would that be the one that you would say was the most, in a way, intricate or challenging or whatever for you? Brendan or? Sexton, is he's a great actor. He beat me up. <laughs> I think the most challenging thing was just being sick during some of those scenes. I was I got very sick during the shoot. That was the really the only challenge, yeah. At the end of the film, obviously, you know, and if you're at this point haven't seen it, I'm sorry, tough, you know, no spoiler alerts yeah, to anybody, yeah, but yeah. Dixon and Marjorie ride off. And I just wonder... Where do you think they end up? And is there the potential that this story could ever be? I don't know if it would be Martin style, but that it that it could be picked up somewhere down the road. Like what's happening with these guys when we when we leave them? It's a good question. I think they probably go to a bar and get some liquid courage and then end up making out or something and they don't kill anybody. <laughs> I think that's probably what happens. A, so this movie was shot back in the summer of 2016. Yeah, uh, obviously. A lot has happened in America since then. Yeah. And people maybe view it through a different prism than you guys were even possibly thinking about when you when you made it. And I guess in some ways, maybe, you know, do you think that makes it harder for people to get past some of Dixon's shortcomings, you know, or or whatever it is, or, or to see it? in as humorous a way as they might otherwise have seen it if, if they're not happy with the, the real world today? Maybe, you know? I don't know. I think it's a, it, it is a very timely movie, and I think that he's a complicated character, and I think that he's got a lot of work to do okay. still when the movie ends, you know? And I, I think it's an interesting time for the movie to come out. I really do, and it's, it is very strange how it all... Because it was, the movie was delayed about a year... And Francis's character is like a sort of a working class Wonder Woman, you know, in a mm-hmm. sense. She's a vigilante, mm-hmm. anti-hero. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very interesting, yeah. yeah. Last three things are yeah. just big picture questions. Yeah. First of all, how did you wind up dancing in so many of your movies? I, do you yeah. love dancing or is it I'm just a, a coincidence? Ham, I'm a big ham bone, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> no, it's great. And you go on YouTube, there's a whole montages of yeah, this. It's yeah. great. But I, I mean, I, I heard that may go back to early childhood. Did you meet some? Do you have a friend or something that was got you into dancing? I hung out with a different crowd in middle school, and I guess I just kind of started just dancing because I was the way to meet girls and stuff. And I, I got into like Michael Jackson and stuff like that. And so, do you kind of urge it to be incorporated in movies, or it's just worked out that it's been in a lot of movies? Dancing for you or your character. I don't know. I guess it just kind of it just kind of happened that way. I mean, <laughs> I'm just a big ham bone. And I love you know. I I dance. I, you know, I like to dance. I'm not really a trained dancer, but I like to dance. Right. Yeah. Okay. Number two, I understand that maybe even right now, but certainly recently, you've been working on a movie in which you will play George W. Bush. That's right. Yeah. This yeah. is for Adam McKay, who people yes. will know from The Big Short, and Christian Bale is going to be Dick Cheney. Amy Adams yes. is going to be Lynn Cheney. What's it like to to be inside the head of George W. Bush? Well, there was a lot of time in the makeup chair. We had a prosthetic uh, nose and stuff. But the makeup department did a great job in the costume part. And the wig and the whole, the, you know, the, that helped a lot, the hair and makeup. Is it a comedy, a drama? What is it? It's like the big short meets Goodfellas or something or Boogie Nights. You know, it's like it's it's out there. It's funny, it's serious, it's got like Shakespearean stuff in it, singing and dancing. <laughs> it's crazy, it's a crazy movie. But it's cool, it's a great script, yeah. and I had a blast doing it. It was tough to be doing that for four months or whatever it was. I had to kind of stay in it, and I went away and came back, and mm-hmm. 
you know, Christian's just there the whole time, man. Just, I saw him in Telluride, and I didn't even recognize him. He's put yeah. on so much weight to play Cheney. He yeah. was in it, man. He was really <laughs> doing it. And he had the suit and, you know, getting into makeup at, like, 3 in the morning. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot. But, yeah, I, I listened to a lot of George Bush. Mm-hmm. I listened to a lot of George Bush. Did it change your perspective on him? It changed. Yeah, well, I definitely found him very charming, mm-hmm. you know. And it really changed my mouth for a few months. I was kind of like in my lips more. And, you know, it was really cool to play him. I had a great time. But it was taxing, I got to say. Is that coming out this year? It's coming out probably probably year after. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. So last question. Later this year, yeah. you I don't believe I'm violating any confidences. You'll be turning 50. Oh, jeez. Uh, yeah. Good God. What does it mean to you at this point, you know, three decades into a career, I think, yeah. to receive SAG Golden Globe and Critics' Choice Awards to get your first Oscar nomination. Who knows what happens March 4th? I mean, it, it's especially because, as I mentioned earlier, there's been a lot of great work that it was certainly noticed by your peers and by critics and people that write about this stuff, but somehow this kind of appreciation has yeah, has nice. not happened before now. It's very overdue. I just wonder how, what you're making of it at this point. You know, Would it have yeah. been better if it had happened at an earlier age or are you happy that it's happening now just what do you make of it all well first of all thanks for saying that but i think it's uh i think it's probably better now than if i was younger it would be i don't know if i could handle the sort of white heat that is this (laughs) this season it's intense you know i'm having a lot of fun with it it's a nice time and we've already won you know we're here you know (laughs) we've been nominated we're here and the win is you're at the luncheon and you're hugging Meryl Streep, you know, <laughs> or you're talking to Gary Oldman and P.T. Anderson, you know, that that's the win. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? We're here talking about this stuff and that's like, I'm going to see Clark Gregg later, mm-hmm. you know, and this is, this is the win, you know. So when you get to talk to Holly Hunter or Laurie Metcalf about acting or something, mm-hmm. that's, that's the win, right. you know. Awesome. Well, congratulations and thanks for doing that. Thanks, man. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.